0: Welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. It is a big day here in the United States, uh, and really globally. I think that um, uh, probably uh, people all over the world are paying very close attention to what has taken place here in uh, in the United States. And obviously, we're going to be paying attention to what happens tonight and over the coming weekend. There have, of course, been threats of uh, large amounts of uh, violence, uh, nights of rage uh which demons do that um you know the culture of death uh that's 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 sort of what you would expect from from such uh, such people but i was thinking back to the weekend of my daughter's birth in 1989 um i don't think she's old enough yet to be upset that i would mention the uh, year of her birth but anyway uh <laughs> um i mean Tomorrow's my 40th wedding anniversary. So, you know, you don't even think about stuff like Once you get to, to my age, you just sort of, you don't worry about stuff like that anymore. You just go ahead and say things and it's, it's okay. You're, you're old now. Anyways, um, I remember that weekend. It was an incredible weekend. Uh, I was arrested outside an abortion clinic uh, that weekend. Uh, we shut down Brian Finkel. Was it, was it Brian Finkel? I think so. Yeah. Uh, it's a long time ago now. And, um, you know, he eventually ended up in prison if, if I recall correctly. In fact, I'm not even sure he's still around anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% certain about that. But anyway, he was, uh, he was, late term, just the, the stuff that you would hear, it, the stuff that I heard him saying as we were outside his clinic, uh, to people was purely demonic, uh, absolutely demonic. And, um... That, that was the same weekend that uh, Summer was born. And I think the day before that, I was on KFYI radio here in uh, Phoenix as the media representative for Operation Rescue. Now, I eventually had to end my association with Operation Rescue because they made it very clear that the work I was doing, because that was 89 and uh, the fatal flaw, I think, came out in 90. Yeah, yeah. So, you, you, they didn't, there was a lack of clarity as to the centrality of the gospel at that point in time. Um, But I had the opportunity of taking on representatives of the other side. I've done that a number of times, taking on especially religious defenders of abortion. And in those situations, I have absolutely positively not. A shred of mercy. Um, the position is so self-evidently contradictory, absurd, unbiblical, unchristian, that it's um, quite easy to take apart. And um, that is that is no place for what's the, what's the term that's being used right now? Uh, it was being used a lot today um, about about being attractive, whatever. Uh, no, that's not the time for that. Um, you, you take those folks apart. I don't think we have a recording of the radio debate that I did. I could be wrong. And I, uh, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, that, yeah, Brian Finkel. Um, is he still alive? See, see, if, see if you can find out about that if you got a chance. But, uh, and, and also listen to what I'm saying right now. I did a radio debate with the United Methodist minister somewhere around that time period maybe early nineties. And uh, it was knockdown drag out. I mean, okay, it was he didn't he couldn't defend himself. It was just all emotion as normal. But um I don't think we have a recording of that. I'm not sure if we ever listed it anywhere or anything like that. Someday when someone writes the history of Alpha Ministries, maybe they'll they'll find that. But uh anyway, uh watching the the Twitter feed and listening to the simple insanity of the left. It, it, it is insani- insanity. That that is the incapacity to observe categories, to recognize the centrality of the unborn child, their their genetic uniqueness, their human nature, the fact that every single one of us. That's that's how we got here too. And that everything that makes you you on a unique genetic basis, you received at conception, uh, not when you took your first breath or anything else like that. To see the mind-numbed zombie man called uh, Joe Biden uh, standing in front of cameras, uh, just repeating mindless drivel that, of course, he's in the past. The The most dishonest man I think I've ever experienced ever seen in, in history. I mean, we know that he, I remember back when he was running for president years and years and years ago, and he kept getting knocked out because he, people would just come up with video of him lying about his education and lying about what he did. You know, the, the man wouldn't know how to tell the truth if his life depended upon it. And now he just doesn't even know he's doing it because he's completely senile. It is just disgusting um, to to see this regime using this senile old man as their, as their uh, teleprompter reader. It's elder abuse. It's just disgusting um, how we have fallen in so many ways. Um, anyway, the argumentation that is being used is hopefully all of you in the audience are, are ready to absolutely take it apart. And it hasn't changed. Well, okay, it's gotten worse in the sense that now it is completely dependent upon uh, new terminology that they didn't have back when when I was doing stuff in nineteen eighty nine um, women's health care reproductive rights uh, people would have laughed at that terminology back then because it's just it's just so self evidently absurd, but not today, not today um it's uh, it, it's enough to make you just sit here and and just want to turn it all off, even on a day of rejoicing. I mean, I I said this morning on Twitter. Uh, look, I'm Scottish. <laughs> we are we are realists, and uh, we we know what's coming over this weekend, and we know we we can see. The leaders on the left saying, "Let's just tear this government apart. Let's just tear it down. Let's burn it down. Let's burn this nation down." Talk about citing <laughs> insurrection. They're all over the place. They don't care because they know that that's the whole thing with the left. They can do whatever they want, and nothing nothing will be said or done about it for the obvious reason that they're in charge. And that's that's what tyranny is all about. It's once you lose the rule of law uh, and become a, a, a nation of men, um, that's what you're going to get. And history's filled with it, that's why I don't teach history in schools anymore, uh, then you, you might understand why it was, so, it was so good that we once had a strong dedication to being a, a nation of law rather than a nation of men. But how, how many people honestly, especially in the younger generations, do you know that have ever even heard the phrase, let alone have any idea what it means? Uh, not many, not many at all, not many at all. Um, I did want to mention, since we're all thinking about it, um, there was, uh, (laughs) I just retweeted a picture of the Supreme Court. Uh, he's serving a 35-year sentence. Yes. Okay, good. Um, believe you me, it's going to be a lot longer in the future. Um, 35 years will seem like a, like a twinkling of an eye in comparison to eternity for Brian Finkel. But, um... Uh started in two thousand and four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we like I said, I I had to endure being near him that day when then when we closed him down and it was it was like being with the and demoniac. It really was. It just just the man's demonic. Uh, no question. Um but uh in the uh decision, <laughs> like I said, the I tweeted a picture of the Supreme Court and it had the three liberals in the face, and it had the five with the uh, thug life sunglasses on, and then Justice Thomas's eyes are (laughs) glowing. (laughs) Eh, Okay. Um, But speaking of Justice Thomas, uh, most people have have made reference to the fact that there is a uh, section in his part of the decision that he wrote or opinion that he wrote. This is what it says. For that reason, in future cases, we should reconsider all this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Because any substantive due process decision is demonstrably erroneous, we have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. After overruling these demonstrably erroneous decisions, the question would remain whether other constitutional provisions guarantee the myriad rights that our substantive due process cases have generated. For example, we we could consider whether any of the rights announced in this court's substantive due process cases are privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States protected by the 14th Amendment. So he went ahead and said what needs to be said, and... I, it would take a miracle of grace, um, but I believe that God can do it. Uh, I don't know whether He will, uh, but it would take a, a, a an outpouring of grace uh, for there to be sufficient worldview change in this land for us to finally recognize how absolutely insane, childish, absurd Obergefell was. And I say that as one who's read the decision. On any level, it is worse than Roe in its forms of argumentation. And that's saying a lot, given how bad Roe was. Um, Obergefell was, was written in crayon. And the man who wrote it should be ashamed of himself and will be in eternity. I can assure you of that, but uh he went ahead and said it, and um now, Alito, I think specifically in the opinion itself, said otherwise, but Thomas said it, and we need about six more Thomases uh if we're going to um get anywhere and i just in passing, I had this I had already clipped this. Yesterday, but um, there was a major case yesterday, as you know, you, know, you might know, regarding concealed carry um, in New York. Then again, the, the governor of New York, the unelected governor of New, York, of New York who became governor when the other guy had to head for the hills, she's worse than he was um she 's just a mindless zealot <laughs> i q of a wet shoelace it 's just incredible um, but uh you know they 're just going nuts uh, you know we can 't protect people and, and what they 're really doing is we don 't want people to protect themselves, we want them to be completely dependent upon us, and we 're not going to defend them anyways but they, they, you know, we want all the power we 're totalitarians, and that 's how we are uh I think it was Thomas again. In that uh, opinion, uh, that wrote this, a short prologue is in order. Even before the Civil War commenced in 1861, this court indirectly a- affirmed the importance of the right to keep and bear arms in public. Writing for the court in Dred Scott v. Sanford, uh, Chief Justice Taney offered what he thought was a parade of horribles that would result from recognizing that free blacks were citizens of the United States if blacks were citizens taney fretted they would be entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens including the right to keep and carry arms wherever they went thus even chief justice taney recognized albeit unenthusiastically in the case of blacks that public carry was a component of the right to keep and bear arms a free a right free blacks were often denied in antebellum america yep you have the right to protect yourself, uh, and uh, the, uh, the left does not want any of that taking place. So uh, we pray for God's restraint upon evil uh, with the coming darkness, and I mean nighttime. <laughs> and we pray for the protection of churches— uh, crisis pregnancy centers, pro-life organizations. Um, uh, my own, my own church is the home base of End Abortion Now. And, uh, I know on Sunday we are going to be well aware of what day it is. Uh, many churches need to be aware of what day it is, I think. Um, but we pray for God's hand of restraint. Though I'll be honest with you, I look around our nation and I see very little evidence of that hand of restraint. Because that's an act of grace. That's a gift. We can we can beg for it, but it's not that it's not we we don't deserve it. Um, all of us need patience because uh, what we're hearing from the leaders from Senators, representatives, oh, good grief, from the Injustice Department, because that's what we need to start calling it, it's, they, they've, <laughs> justice isn't their thing, uh, they, Joe, Joe Biden's personal police force uh, that does his thing, um, what we're hearing from all these people is such a blather of insane, childish rhetoric that it it, it can truly cause us to lose our Lose our minds um, as far as recognizing just just how foolish these these people are and the deception that they live in. But we have a lot of work uh, we we have a lot of work cut out for us. It's funny a lot of people are like, okay, now we've got to you know we have to be really careful how we respond to this because we we need to keep we need to keep getting people on our side. No, you need to have changed hearts. Need to have changed hearts. That's what it's the only hope this this nation has, and I am very very encouraged to see that there are I think two uh, states already that have said that's it no more abortions in the state Missouri and was it Alabama or Arkansas? I think it was Alabama. Um, started with an A. <laughs> it was in the south. Um, uh, abortion had been illegal here in uh, Arizona until the uh, pro life folks. Fixed that last, last year. Um, so we've, we've got a sort of a heartbeat type thing, but we, we don't have, as far as I know, any type of real trigger thing. It, it's now a battle locally, from state to state. And uh, please make note of the large companies uh, that d- d- the real uh, insertion of corporatism into our society um, in a very negative fashion, uh, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods uh, put out, you know, we will we will provide up to four thousand dollars for our employees to go out of state uh, to kill their babies, and uh, someone else, uh, their their company, five thousand uh, uh, for baby killing, and uh, mark them out, uh, see who they are, and uh, if you can. Let them know I'm not going to give you my money anymore. Sometimes, sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but when you can, great. Uh, but what really needs to change is the worldview of the people around us. And that only changes with hearts. And if you think that that's, you change hearts not by the ministry of the gospel, that's been the big downfall of the pro-life movement is once they kick the gospel out, and like I said, I experienced that in 1989. Once you kick the gospel out, you kicked out the only thing that can actually change hearts, change hearts and minds, and that's a that's an issue. But uh, there you go. Uh, what an amazing uh, what an amazing day. Uh, I was certainly praying about it because when it was leaked, and isn't it amazing that we don't know who leaked that yet? You don't you don't think they don't know? Of course they know. Of course they know. Um but anyway. Uh you know, with people showing up on your front lawn with knives and guns and threatening your family and and everything else, pff, you know, the possibility really existed that somebody would say, "No, nope, I'm going to I'm going to go the other direction. I'm going to make a change, you know, because until they come out and, and, and with the order and all the rest of, you know, there's a specific process and everything. They could have changed it. And it's, it's technically six, three, but it's sort of five and a half, three and a half. Um, Roberts is sort of there, sort of not there. Um, but technically it's six, three, um, But again, unless we have free elections, all that can change because, you know, the the left is saying we need to codify Roe and and, uh, Casey. Really, they're codifying Casey, but uh, we need to put all this into law so it's no longer up to the Supreme Court. And um, they will do that by hook or by crook. They, they, these, these, the 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 regime has no concern for constitutionality, has no concern about being treasonous to the United States. None, don't care at all. They're out there screaming in cameras that they want to end the Supreme Court. They want to end the Constitution. But they're doing it right now. There are people saying things right now that when when I was when I got married. 40 years ago tomorrow. Um, I can guarantee you those people would not have been in office uh, a week after they said them, but it's a different world today. Very, 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 very different world today. No choice about it. Um, Okay. Cancel that. Okay. A couple other things. Uh, You might actually want to think about something other (laughs) than than, um, Roe v. Wade. That, that seems to be sort of hard to do right now, I, I confess, I admit. But if you would like to spend a few moments thinking about some other things, then we will be talking about some other things now. Um, I was sent a uh, screenshot from the Confessional Bibliology uh, Facebook group, which I am not a part of. Um, but it will sort of, I think help to bring us into the the historical discussion that we need to have in light of what happened really over the past couple of days in regards to the Council of Nicaea. Uh, A fellow by the name of Josh Dills uh, wrote the following. I've wrestled with textual issues to the point of exhaustion. And I honestly wish I'd never heard of textual criticism. It makes me wonder if the CT, which I assume he's using it to mean critical text, advocates don't realize all they've done is bring confusion and division to the body of Christ, or do they just not care? And a fellow by the name of Scott Tarran, T-A-R-I-N, responded, they've been duped by worldliness. It's like the people who profess the Christian faith and then say they believe in evolution. Now, I want you to I want you to hear the mindset. Confessional bibliology, T R onlyism, the Texas Receptus, um, and the current movement with uh, Dr. Riddle. And some folks in the o p c as well uh as the primary uh, proponents it's a very small group um does not represent to my knowledge any um, influential uh, schools uh scholarship doing translational work or anything else it just doesn't it's a very small idiosyncratic group but unfortunately there in my group if i have a group anymore <laughs> um i guess we sort of define our own these days but uh th- this is this is the the group that is this basically saying if you're to truly, truly be confessional uh then you have to use the same uh greek text that existed when your confession was written um you know i just <laughs> i just thought of something i wonder if we could like come up with a great tradition textual theory um, and say, because the big thing these days is, is Nicaea. Uh, this is Ayers' book. I, I've noticed a bunch of people going, oh, i got to read this book. I had this book in my library for years. Um, I have a lot of books on, on Nicaea. Nicaea has been something that I've dealt, worked on for many, many, many years. Um, this one's 18 years old. But um, what if we, since since Nicaea is the big topic right now, uh, how about we do confessional bibliology where you use the text that is clearly predominant uh, in the fourth century? <laughs> uh, that'd be fun because the only way you could reconstruct that as far as manuscripts would be the papyri. Well, not all the papyri but the uh, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century papyri and the great unseals, primarily Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Uh, If you wanted to... No, you really couldn't throw Alexandrinus in there. That's just outside the the bounds. But anyway, uh, maybe we could squish all that stuff together and say to be truly confessional, you have to use uh, these guys. That's not the Cron. Remember these? Oh, you put my back out. This is from uh, CSNTM. Doot, 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 doot. It's a two-volume two set. I like the... These are the reproductions of uh, P45, P46, and P47. And they're in white and black, and that's the, the background color for the photographs and um i've just i don't know why i've just always found um the the black to look so much better uh it, it, the contra- i don't know why it is the contrast just uh this is of course p forty six uh p uh, p that's hebrews um but here's uh from the chester b d library my well look familiar deep deep deep, deep deep de, de. <laughs> Uh, that's what's in the background there. P45 and John chapter 10. And very, very, very readable. But the point is, you would have to, uh, if you're going to be truly confessional with the Nicene Creed, use this. They don't want to use that. Uh, because that wouldn't have uh, the Kami Johannium, and it wouldn't have the Pracope Adulterae, and um, probably wouldn't have the uh, reading of Mark and so those are those are the big deals, and so why not why not go that direction? I don't know. Put all that back together again when I'm done here. Uh, knowing me, I'll trip over that. I... <laughs> Short term memory, it goes after a while. But to, anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we we sort of wandered off there and started playing. Let's let's show all our cool stuff here. Uh, I'm noticing, Rich, that I'm really getting a lot of um, sound coming back from the. From the studio, the other, the other side there. I'm not sure if that's something you have control over, or if I just need to say, hold on a second, folks. I need to close the door. Uh, may, that may be the only way I can, uh, I can fix things. But um, otherwise, I have to talk very quietly. But I can still hear myself uh, rather, rather clearly coming from the other way. Uh, Rich is um, MIA. He's uh, at home doing this, and we appreciate that. And uh, that's the only way we can do things right now. Uh, we can run a commercial. No, this is how you do it. Watch this. And if anybody cares that we had a moment that just doesn't mean diddly. Now, back to what we were saying <laughs> the uh, The statements from Josh Dills and Scott Terran, especially Josh Dills give us an insight into the mindset of this. um, It's not a form of textual criticism. They don't do, they do not do textual criticism. They could not produce their own text. They are not producing um, arguments about, about manuscripts or text. No, they already have their text. They have, they have their text right here. Okay. This is, this is, this is it right here. Trinitarian Bible Society. Um, And, Any argument that substantiates this is a good argument, even if they're all contradictory arguments. So they're not doing text criticism. They're not concerned about uh, any new manuscripts that would be found. They're not concerned about CBGM. Uh, None of these things. They already have their text, and that's the end of that. It's It's a very tight, circular argument. And so... It's not a form of textual criticism, but this gives you a a mind insight into the mindset of these folks. I've wrestled with textual issues to the point of exhaustion. What does that mean? Which ones? If you're, and I honestly wish I'd never heard of textual criticism. (laughs) Um, You you do realize. That we have the first references to textual variation in the second century I'd, I'd probably say Justin Martyr and his responses um, to the a- accusation that Christians had changed things in the in the Greek Septuagint and things like that um, but starts early on second century, and every single century after that. You have Christians talking about variations in manuscripts because until the printing press made printed books quite common, which wasn't with Gutenberg. It took a good 150 years, 200 years before they became quite common. Um, You had handwritten manuscripts. And there would be errors and there would be things that were difficult to read and there would be smudged pages. And that was how humanity moved along in life. And so here's somebody in 2022 who is to the point of exhaustion, who has more information readily at hand, concerning the manuscripts of the New Testament any generation before them, but he's exhausted. So we're going to stop talking about it? Because you're exhausted? Hmm. It makes me wonder if the critical text advocates don't realize all they've done, all, all they've done, all those people down through the years, and you gotta, you got to realize... Erasmus was a critical text advocate in the sense that he did textual criticism. He analyzed manuscripts. Now he analyzed very few of them. He didn't have nearly what we have today. But he did. Stephanus did that, Beza did that. You know, the people who created your text did the things that you now say exhaust you. And so so <laughs> The self-contradiction of this position. I I just don't understand how these guys can't see it. It makes me wonder if the critical text advocates don't realize all they've done is bring confusion and division to the body of Christ or or do they just not care? So here's a guy. And so he grabs this. This is created by doing critical analysis of manuscripts. But once it's in print, then we just forget about that, dehistoricize it, rip it out of history and go, oh, finally, we don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. So what it is. It's what it is. You guys can't get out of it. You can't get away from it. Those are the facts. That's just what it is. <sighs> wow. <laughs> It will eventually just flop in upon itself. It it will. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit um about what happened over the past couple of days before night before Nicaea. <laughs> before uh the Road decision came down this morning. And we we knew it was gonna come today, but anyway. Um I've got a bunch of quotes here. Not sure exactly let me let me start with this one because i I wanted to make a comment about this, and it has come up from some other folks, and so let me read you a few words from Augustine. Okay, Augustine is writing less than a century to all the way out to a century after uh, Nicaea. So still, fairly close in, in time. Um, Augustine said in uh, his epistle on... Uh, epistle on Johannes Tractus 2, if you want to look it up. You ought to notice particularly and store in your memory that God wanted to lay a firm foundation in the scriptures against treacherous errors. A foundation against which no one dares to speak who would in any way be considered a Christian. <laughs> Haven't been to too many of our seminaries these days. For when he offered himself to them to touch, this did not suffice him unless he also confirmed the heart of the believers from the scriptures. For he foresaw that the time would come when we would not have anything to touch, but have something to read. Hmm. Hmm. Augustine de Bono Viduitatis 2, What more shall I teach you than what we read in the Apostle? For Holy Scripture fixes the rule for our doctrine. I think, I think, another translation has canon. Now, of course, he'd be writing in Latin anyways, but, Lest we dare to be wiser than we ought, Therefore, I should not teach you anything anything else except to expound to you the words of the teacher. Now, did Augustine always do what he himself said? <laughs> well, no. Um, there are times when Augustine will uh, depend upon traditions or some of his interpretations of Scripture will leave you going, what did you say? Uh, but I really appreciate the sentiment for Holy Scripture fixes the rule for our doctrine. He said in De Unitate Ecclesia, the unity of the church, 3, let us not hear this I say, this you say, but thus says the Lord. Surely it is the books of the Lord on whose authority we both agree and which we both believe. Therefore, there, there, I'm sorry, there, let us seek the church. There, let us discuss our case. Sadly, if, and it didn't really cross my mind to do it, but I could have, I could have used a number of these quotations in Twitter, Facebook, whatever, and not given attribution to Augustine and used them as my own words. And you know what You know what the response of many would have been from the, let's call it the davenant perspective, the, uh, the great tradition Baptists, or the Christian Platonists, or whatever terminology you want to use, you know what the response would be? been? You know what I would have been accused of if I had said these things? You're a biblicist. Because now that's a bad word. It's a bad word. And it will never be a bad word for me. Because no matter how much you straw man it, no matter how much you redefine it, turn it into a, a the same terminology as solo scriptura or nuda scriptura. um, That's not what it means. There is something about scripture that makes it absolutely unique and therefore invests in it an authority that precludes your submitting it to a higher authority, requiring an external authority for its interpretation or an addition of an authority to it. Because there's nothing else that is theonomous. Okay, it's it's an on. I, I guess I have always given an ontological foundation for sola scriptura that ends up having epistemological ramifications. If you want to use big terms, um, the the form of reform biblicism that I documented in Calvin in his response to Sadeletto. And it's interesting. I don't. I spend hours making these presentations, doing reading, putting the material together, and I get zip, nada, in response. Um, There is one exception. Oh, drat. And I don't think I can bring that up. Uh, Uh... let me see if I can get it from Rich. Let's see if Rich can send it to me in Signal because I, I can't find it in uh, Element uh, on this this computer. It just it just won't work. And something I forgot to grab. Let's see if I can find it. Um, when I went to the uh, second Nicaea, one person I'm gonna try to get around to that. One person tried to sort of respond uh, again never going to the original sources. Nobody went to Calvin's response, sat alone and said, no, you're wrong about that. Um, no one went to second Nicaea and said, no, you're wrong about that. Uh, it is a little frustrating. It, you just you just get all this dismissive stuff uh, out there and it's, um, it's troubling. But if I had said these things that Augustus said, but here's, Here's the quote I'm trying to um, get around to this. After the Council of Nicaea, people today tend to think that when the Council of Nicaea met, it was recognized as an ecumenical council, and therefore it had this authority, all the rest of it. You need to realize that is a completely anachronistic uh, perspective. It, it it's us looking back in time, and we have invested in Nicaea the title of the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical, worldly, worldwide. It wasn't really worldwide. It was mainly the Eastern churches, but that's what we call it. And what 99.5% of Christians in the world don't know is that after Nicaea, it had to struggle to survive and not be overthrown. It was called the period of the Aryan resurgence. Jerome, in the next century, terminology he used off the top of my head was, the world awoke and was astonished to find itself Aryan. And for decades, the Aryans had political and ecclesiastical power. Athanasius became bishop, I think, in 326. I think, be, I think Alexander died, and he became bishop of Alexandria in 326. Again, off the top of my head. Uh, right after the Council of Nicaea. He was, not a, he was not one of the bishops at Nicaea. He was at Nicaea, but he was an assistant to Alexander. Anyways, Athanasius is driven out of his church. Thank you. Uh, Athanasius is driven out of his church Uh, Five times by the, not the ecclesiastical authorities, but uh, five times by Roman authorities, political authorities, over the course of the next number of years. Five times. Hence the phrase, Athanasius Contramundum. So, Nicaea only gained the kind of doctrinal authority that it possesses today over time. The people that were even there had no dream that because, by tradition, little over 300, 318 bishops met with the emperor, uh, that that somehow gave them some kind of Special insight into scripture or anything along those lines. That's something that develops much, much, much later. And so, Augustine, writing years later, is writing to an Arian named Maximin. And in writing to Maximin the Arian, Augustine says these words, I must not press the authority of Nicaea against you, nor you that of Ariminum against me. I do not acknowledge the one as you do not the other, but let us come to ground that is common to both the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. now, I would say that 99.988% of all Christians have never heard of a ruminum. Don't even know where it is. Northern Italy. Uh, 359 September? Again, I don't have my church history notes in front of me. But um, I have – in fact, what's really funny, some of you long-time folks – um, you know what, you know what I was reading it from <laughs> my IRC scripts. Yeah. My old Merc IRC scripts. Remember how I would, I'd be able to post this stuff. Just boom, 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 boom. Had these IRC scripts probably from the early two thousands, maybe even the late nineties. I don't remember now, but probably the early two thousands. I put these together and used them in the IRC chat channel. <laughs> That's what I've got up here. It's, I don't have that program anymore, but the IRC scripts are still very valuable. So anyway. Um, Ariminum, I'm I'm thinking September 359. So this is uh, 29, uh, 24 years? 24 years? No. 359. It's after Uh, 25 plus 9 34 years after Nicaea. And too many numbers going on here, and uh, it it sought to it, it was an Arianized a- creed. So it, it it was an attempt to subvert Nicaea, and so Augustine is writing to an Arian who quotes a council that was probably more recent was was more recent by number of years than Nicaea and Augustus says I cannot press the authority of Nicaea against you hmm. <laughs> uh, there's so many people in Twitter and Facebook over the past couple of days that if you didn't tell them who said this they would be going Pah. But he says, I, I I must not press the authority of see against you. Why? Because he knew, nor you that of Remnant against me. We both have contradictory counsels. Huh. I wonder if that's where Luther got some of his idea. Remember what he said? Counsels have erred and oh contradicted each other. Which is which eventually led to him saying, Ah, here stay kan yesh andres God help him Remember that? Yeah, that was back when we were still Protestants. Anyway, um, I do not acknowledge the one, Ariminum, as you do not the other, Nicaea. But let us come to ground that is common to both the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. But aren't we hearing some people today saying and quoting heirs as foundation that you need to have? Nicaea. You need to have Christian Platonism to be able to prove the Trinity, to be able to, to, to back that up. Gustin didn't seem to think so. He seemed to believe the testimony of the Holy Scriptures was sufficient. And let me tell you something as someone who's been defending the deity of Christ for many decades now, they are sufficient. I have never, not once, had to look a Jehovah's Witness in the eye and say, let me introduce you to Plato. Not once. Not a single time. And if you ever do that, I'm telling you right now, you missed the boat. And you're not helping that person at all. So, is Augustine's, is this quotation to be understood as saying that well, Nicaea is irrelevant. No. Do I accept the authority of the Council of Nicaea? I accept that the statements of the Creed regarding the person of Jesus Christ being homoousius with the Father is perfectly and accurately representative of what Scripture teaches on that subject, and therefore it has authority, because it is biblical, because it accurately represents the whole counsel of God in Scripture. Nicaea is not theonistos. And of course we have to define Nicaea, don't we? There's been a lot of confusion about this. There's a lot of people just haven't done much reading and don't understand that councils didn't just produce symbols or creeds they also produced canons and today it is very common to see, see people going well we don't have to worry about the canons see up until recently it was a i thought it was a given i had always functioned and functioned just fine in reformed baptist circles as a professor as a teacher as a fellow um, in various organizations and scholastic organizations, and as an author, a whole nine yards. I had functioned just fine, assuming everybody else is on the same page. And that is that when we talked about, for example, the the first seven ecumenical councils, uh, Leo Donald Davis's book, he's, he, he's a um, Roman Catholic. And people are like, well, you don't want to have Roman Catholic books in your library. My library is filled with them. I just recognize what that means um, and recognize the prejudices that are that may be present when it comes to Roman Catholic scholarship today. To be honest with you, you can't necessarily even assume theism for some of them. Boston College? Whew. Anyway, Jesuits, woohoo. Uh, <laughs> it can get pretty, pretty crazy. Anyway, when you, when you look at those councils, I would say that when you look at Chalcedon, which comes 125, 126 years after Nicaea, you're not dealing with Christological issues. And once again, the validity of the formulations must be determined not by the authority of a council, but by the accuracy of its argumentation. That's why I can look at Nicaea and Chalcedon and say, yeah, look, look, here's where we're dealing with what the scripture says. And there is accuracy in the definition that is given. But I can look at second Nicaea and go... Really, um, there's nothing magical about seven, other than well, it's when the east and west are still united before 1054, (laughs) um, which is what, which is what made the call by one particular individual a few years ago for an ecumenical council to excommunicate me, um, just sort of hard not to chuckle about because it's. Just doesn't show a real deep knowledge of history. But anyway, I functioned on the foundation that we were all in the same boat, recognizing that the ultimate authority by which you would say a creed is correct is its fidelity to scripture. And that we all recognized that there was a historical context to these councils where they were dealing with other issues that we, as Reformed biblicists, would say, no, um, most of the canons we would not accept. They, They represent an ecclesiology that we do not believe in. And why don't we believe in it? Because it's not biblical. It represented a traditional development on biblical teaching. If you want to see how that works out, go listen to my debate with Mitch Paqua. It was a really good debate on the priesthood. And you'll see what happens when you press, and the guy reads 12 languages, a, a Roman Catholic scholar on the issue of where the priesthood come from. And he has to admit it's, it's a matter of development. And that's the whole issue, isn't it? Isn't the whole issue of what we're dealing with here the, the concept of development? The idea that, that there is a appropriate development of theology and tradition? And how do you draw the lines on these things? been trying to point this out for a long time but again um, maybe it's helping other folks along those lines so what is Nicaea when we say the council of Nicaea do we include everything the council did well there's another problem the problem is the ice cube got caught in the air hole and when that happens you don't get anything That time it didn't, and I almost drowned. <laughs> um, here's the problem. Which Nicene Creed? Oh, what do you mean, which Nicene Creed? Uh, the Nicene Creed that you may have memorized when you were a kid, which would mean you weren't a Baptist, uh, is not... What was promulgated at Nicaea in three twenty-five. Then the standardized Nicene Creed in the West today, the section on the Holy Spirit has been expanded, probably you know, right around the time of Constantinople in three hundred eighty one. and the Filioque Clause has been added in regards to the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. In the East, <clears throat> they don't have that and it wasn't a part of the original. Now, some people argue about these types of things because that's how they get published and keep their jobs, but that's pretty much what everybody has come to the conclusion of. So which version? Which version? Um, and, and so do you take the whole council but say it has to have been 325? Or can you take the modified later version of the creed, and just ignore all of the uh, canons, and would, and since we're, since we're sitting around these days now, uh, dividing from each other over exegeting our confession, we're exegeting our confession now. We're we're trying to dig up every scrap of paper that any of the framers the London Baptist Confession ever wrote a, a recipe on. And now we're exegeting that. got to exegete that to be able to exegete this. And, you know, people dealt with Westminster. And are we, are we supposed to exegete Nicaea? That's a mess. That's a mess because... Look at what Eusebius did. Uh, and there's more than one Eusebius. <laughs> Eusebius in Nicomedia. Eusebius is Caesarea. It gets really confusing. Um, but, man, there's a lot of stuff that Eusebius said that Constantine did that a lot of modern scholarship goes, yeah, probably not. But older scholarship said, yeah, and we don't know. So, so, there's a lot of confusion. And if you, if you need to have that resource, it can only really take you so far. And it just kept getting more and more and more and more complex. And that's why, again, I, I keep reminding folks what I did with Mitch Paqua, the end of our solo scripture debate. You know, I got out all those books and said, So, you're telling me that I need this stack of books. To understand what Romans 5 1 says, right? Isn't it obvious that all this stuff here has confused Romans 5 1, not clarified Romans 5 1? Aren't we going the same direction? So, I had just blissfully uh, bopped through my life until December of last year, basically, uh, going. Well, yeah, Nicaea's authority is due to its um, consistency in representing biblical teaching. And I knew that the Roman Catholic says no, because Roman Catholic apologists have said over and over, again, you could never prove the Trinity without the church's authority, without the church's tradition. And I have always been very angered by that. It It's so blasphemous to me. Um, but now I'm literally hearing of Reformed Baptists who are suggesting that you could not actually prove the doctrine of the Trinity without the great tradition or without um, Christian Platonism. And I go, wow, that happened fast. That really happened fast. So... Owen Strand was lobbing hand grenades in uh, Twitter a couple days ago, I think two days ago. And everybody was going crazy and nuts. and, and, And as I was reading what he was saying, what he was saying was what I had said, and that is the authority of anything that is not theonustos is derivative. It's secondary. And if you elevate so let, let's do it this way. Okay, here's here's what Steonist does, right? And if you say here's here's the first seven ecumenical councils, that's not all of them, but not all their documents, but it's a book about it. just run with the idea here. And if you say that this creates confusion. Nothing in between me and the text. This this creates confusion. Um, but then saying this clarifies. Then you have to answer, then what is the ontological nature of this? What's its origin? And what's its epistemological authority? If this is the necessary lens then how do you deal with it being non-theonustos? And this is theonustos. I'll tell you how some people have dealt with it. Um, Some people have dealt with it by saying, this teaches, see, here's how complex it is. This teaches a church that is invested with a non-theonustos interpretive capacity that's infallible. It's not that it's God breathed, but because of the spirits it is infallible, and that creates traditional lens that then gives you what you need. That is not what we believed. I hope it's not what we believe today. But I'm wondering how some people would avoid it with the things that they're saying, with the things that they're saying. Um regarding Nicaea. And so I was literally seeing Protestants saying, Well, we can't just start over again, and no one's saying you start over again. That that's that's the other thing, is there was there's just been this tremendous amount of straw manning going on. And it it's there's so much of it you can't even keep up with it. You're saying that your private interpretation can overthrow Nicaea. That's not what I'm saying. Well, then, if you're saying your private interpretation can't, then, then that's what we're saying, that it has an authority in and of itself. When you think these issues through and then seek to make application, for example, in dealing with Roman Catholicism, issues like that, you have to Recognize that the difficulty that every generation faces, that every generation must wrestle with, and and here's what happens when you when you have a generation or two that skips it, the next generation is going to really struggle. When it's the generation before yours that really dealt with it, you've got something to fall back on. And I'm afraid what has happened very often is that, for example, dealing with Roman Catholicism, um, that was such a live life and death issue in the Reformation in the next number of generations that they were well aware of where they had to draw the line because they knew that right across that line is Rome. Right across that line is the Tiber. Right across that line in those days, remember, Geneva sent missionary after missionary after missionary into Italy and they all died. Just a line of martyrs. It, it was much more than a Twitter battle back then. And so you knew where to draw the line. And you didn't play around with this stuff. You didn't make jokes about solo scriptura. You know, when when you were a teacher and the last five of your students had burned to death in Roman Catholic territories. You didn't joke about this stuff. Now we joke about it. Well, I don't, but some people do. So, what the, the, the normal uh, bifurcation, binary, to use the term we're using these days, that I'm seeing today is either it's you and your Bible starting all over again and learn nothing from these things, or it's, you've got the great tradition and it has this, um, this authority to it that cannot be questioned. Probably is, can't define it, but I am going to try to respond to that in just a moment that we'll close the program when I respond to that. Even though, to be honest with you, unless I get that thing, that font bigger, uh, I'm not going to be able to read anything. <laughs> Format, font, bigger. <laughs> it's in that horrible font that uh, you get naturally on computers. And it just, it's, it's ugly. Oh, oh um, anyway, Rich woke up um, <laughs> after I put him to sleep. So th- those, are, those are the two sides that you're given is it's, You get to start over again, and if you learn anything from Nicaea, ah, that gives Nicaea a binding authority. In the middle is where I've always been, and I thought all the rest of us were. And that is, I recognize, and I am not embarrassed to say that I recognize Semper Reformanda. I will continue to defend Semper Reformanda. I'm sorry that there are many of my Reformed brethren who will not defend that with me any longer, but I have always tried to be consistent. If you don't believe in Semper Reformanda, don't go and try to convince people who claim to be Christians but who may have a false gospel to abandon their traditions because you've got nothing to say to them. Because you've got your own that can't be Reformed. So... Uh, I believe in Semper Reformanda. That does not mean that you reinvent the wheel. Uh, it does not mean that you start over again. It does not mean you you become an emergent church guy and um, put everything on the table from the Trinity to the resurrection, the atonement, and start all over again, all the rest of that kind of silliness. None of those things are necessary. But it is absolutely necessary to recognize that there has been a development in doctrine. That does not mean new doctrine has been developed. What it means is the doctrine is there in Scripture, but then the doctrine has had to go out into all the world and answer questions from all sorts of different perspectives. It's funny, almost all this conversation is in the West. Rarely do we talk about the East, even in Eastern Orthodoxy, and even less rarely, do we talk about, East, East, East. The church went into places like China. And that's up. The, the questions that are asked in that culture are very, very different. And most of what we're arguing about is what people in the West have argued about and the questions have been asked and the role of Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy asks questions of Christianity. So Christianity starts using Greek philosophical terminology and that was necessary, but where, where is the Jerusalem-Athens line? Where is the line where you step over from answering questions that need to be answered from a Greek philosophical perspective because you're in a world influenced by that? Where do you step over the line? And people will disagree on this, but where do you step over the line from using the language to explain a biblical perspective to where the language now determines what the biblical perspective is. And it is self-evident to me that there were many in the early church that didn't just step over that line. They fell over it completely and then kept running past it. And so anybody who cannot see that there have been imbalances where greek philosophy has become not the handmaiden but the driving source you I don't do you read your history <laughs> do, do, really it just seems so obvious and we all I thought once agreed on all that stuff and so in the middle <clears throat> You appreciate what God has done. You enjoy reading the early church fathers. You are challenged by them, by their godly lives, some, obviously. You learn from their failures. You learn from their successes. You read their biblical exegesis, and sometimes you go, Oh, man, I, that is, oh, that's good. Then you turn the page and go, What? And we have that today. We have that today. You know people that you can listen to today and go, wow, that is, yeah, that, hmm. And then you listen to the next term and it's like, where did that come from? Is this the same guy? Did I, did I bring up the wrong file? That happens today. It happened back then. And, and it probably happened more back then because there wasn't quite as much Ability to hear what other people are saying and have the kind of iron sharpening iron type thing that we have today. So um, you can read church history, learn from church history. You can read Greek philosophy and learn from Greek philosophy. But none of it's the honest ones. And once... You have something external, external that defines how far that which is theonostas can go. Now you've got your problem. Once you start telling people you'll never fully understand what's in Scripture unless you have this external, there's the problem. There's the issue. That's vitally important. Now I've, I literally again had the stuff queued up to respond to the accusations of heresy. I really did, honestly did. But someone tried to answer one of my questions that I've asked in this program. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to deal with this and we'll wrap up. And I hope that's – unless the grand poobah in charge remotely texts me and says, no, I need to wrap up now, and then this would be a good time to do so, uh, and then I could go keep going. All right. So – I've asked the question more than once, what is the great tradition? So Josh Summer decided, man, I, I cannot, this font really is horrible. Um, Josh Summer decided to answer. So let's, let's see what the answer is. This isn't difficult. That's not a good way to start. <laughs> Christopher Hall so we've got one individual. So we have one individual rather than the great tradition. Isn't that interesting? We don't want to be individuals, but we will use a single individual to define it. Christopher Hall defined the great tradition as to its form in this article from 2020 as the Holy Spirit's gracious work in the church on behalf of the church, which is a biblical definition, Ephesians 4, through 16. Well, that's about as nebulous as you can get. Okay, the Spirit's gracious work in the church on behalf of the church. Let's just point out that for someone like Thomas Aquinas, the key element, if you're going to use that definition, would be the Mass. Read his devotional stuff. Uh, remember, shortly before his death, when he just stopped writing, he said, "I've, I've." He had he had had a ecstatic experience at the Mass. And everything I've written is nothing in comparison to what I've now seen, and he dies shortly thereafter. Okay, he is, a, he is a Eucharistic saint. All right? In direct opposition to the book of Hebrews, but that's, that's the reality. As to the matter of the great tradition, that question has been answered in an apparently too obvious way. For some time in the creeds and confessions. Oh. And the creeds and confessions are about the summary re- recapitulation of the whole council of God, the source of which is Scripture. Which creeds and confessions? Because if it's a great tradition, then it's pre-reformational. And so which creeds and confessions are we talking about? Are we... Um, eh, sorry. Sorry. The keys We're talking about this or is, is all this so you know I, I read from second second Nicaea last show remember so this is this is part of the great tradition then all right so we need to so we need to recognize that It is the gracious work of the Spirit in the church on behalf of the church to teach us that you can venerate images, including the Theotokos, the God-bearer, Mary. Okay? right? If not, why not? Because so far I haven't been given any um, parameters to where I can go, that's that's great tradition that is biblical and that's great tradition that isn't biblical or isn't the gracious work of the spirit i keep using biblical i'm sorry it's just i'm old and that's how we did things i can predict the follow-on question is which creator confessions do we choose mm-hmm. in terms of defining the great tradition this question is beside the point <laughs> Since it presents a dilemma, each individual Christian is constantly faced with. For example, how do we choose churches? How do we choose interpretive decisions? How do we choose lexicons, commentaries, etc.? If the great tradition is ambiguous, the simple reason this question is difficult to answer, then literally everything is ambiguous. Okay. Josh has serious categorical issues. He always has. I've pointed out to him many, many times. He won't listen to me and evidently the people in his life that are my age or close to my age won't help him with it. Um, Choosing a lexicon and defying the great tradition are two different categories of actions. Okay? So it sounds like what's being admitted here is we don't know. But you got to make a decision. Which destroys the whole point of the great tradition to begin with because now you have an individual decision as to what elements of the great tradition are going to be accepted if you can even identify the real answer to how we choose must be faith and humility so you can have faithful humble people who come to completely different Answers, And yet the great tradition is necessary for us to understand the deep things of God and have a true understanding of Scripture. But in case these aren't scientific enough, Scripture informs us. Creeds and confessions secure what Scripture has taught us, and we take those principal commitments back to our reading of Scripture. Um, which creeds and confessions again? We weren't told. We were told that's ambiguous. So it sounds like I can take this. Okay, I can I can take uh, the Pope's letter that was read out the Second Nicene Council. Um, and so Scripture informs us. So I, I I read Scripture. So Scripture Scripture informs us. Creeds and confessions secure what Scripture has taught us, and we take those principal commitments back to our reading of Scripture. How does this work? Let's take the canon. Oh, the canon? The canon is a tradition? You see where this is going? Seriously? Those of you who have listened to the G3 presentation I did with Dr. Michael Krueger on Canon know exactly where this is going. Yeah. How does this work? Let's take the Canon. I buy an NASB. I have no idea how Canon work nor how the NASB came to be, but because it resembles other Bibles I've come into contact with in the past, I assume it's a pretty standard deal. The Second London Baptist Confession 1.2 affirms the same. As I read through the NSB, I come to Song of Songs. I can't understand how it fits the canon. It seems strange, if not downright improper. The temptation to question its canonicity looms, but because I've already committed to an orthodoxy, I think it would probably be orthodox, understanding of the Protestant canon, I do not flinch. By faith in Christ's promise to build his church, and a humility that allows me to be instructed by voices from the past, I receive Song of Songs that is an inspired part of the canon of Holy Scripture. Creeds and confessions help us to keep principal theological commitments in view, So that we do our further exegesis, we do not check our doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, etc., at the door of an exegetical rationalism. The great tradition is a spirit-given ministerially helpful, though not infallible means, by which we check our own individual theologizing. We cannot become our own popes, but must appeal to our brethren, past and present, as we interpret our Bibles. The charge of the Great Tradition has not been defined, or the straw man that the Great Tradition entails a wholesale acceptance of everything that's been written in church history, or that it's a compromise of soul scripture, are not valid charges by reason of the above. The above was one of the worst arguments I've ever seen. It could never be charted logically. And it fails at every point. Let's look. We this is this is something you should do in like in, you know, if you study logic. Um uh, I don't think I have. Oh no, I don't. I've got a bunch of logic text on here, but I don't think that I have it's great there's Canon Press provides a number of great homeschool things. Homeschool resources. And there's a one particular one I have it in the other room on logic. Uh be very, very good. Let's let's very quickly take this apart. Uh let's go back to the canon. He didn't actually come to any conclusion. He just said, well, I accept the Song of Songs because um, of people before me. Which would mean that if you are raised within the Roman Catholic tradition, then you read 2 Maccabees and you read it and you accept it because of the people before you. right? So we shouldn't have any debates on the issue of the canon. Because uh, there there is an element of the great tradition that accepts the Apocryphal books. There's an element of the great tradition that doesn't if we're talking about the great tradition, simply being church history. So there's two streams in regards to the apocryphal books. And they're clearly seen all the way up to the time of the Reformation. So Jerome, Melito, Sardis, um, they recognize the Jews never accepted those books and therefore they do not accept them either. And that goes all the way to Cardinal Caiotan in the days of Luther. Um, And then they're there's Augustine, primarily under the influence of the Greek Septuagint, that accept the apocryphal books. And the Great Tradition cannot answer that question. It can't. Um, so he he raises an issue that the Great Tradition actually doesn't can't can't answer. And then he uses that as an example. I'm not sure if he's aware of that, but I'm, assume, I'm assuming he is. And somehow. Um so by faith in Christ's promise to build his church and a humility, a humility that allows me to be instructed by voices in the past, I receive Song of Songs as inspired part of the canon scripture. Any person following Cardinal Satteletto could have used the exact argumentation to reject the Reformation and the Reformed gospel. These are the words of a man who has never engaged never engaged rome's claims and i'm deeply concerned that if he ever does he will see he's already accepted much of their foundational argumentation that's what's dangerous about this stuff folks that's what's dangerous about this stuff um so then we then we just go we go we we go from the example we don't actually come to a conclusion from the example that's meaningful and now we go to the generalities creeds and confessions help us to keep principal theological commitments in view so that as we do our further exegesis further than what we do not check our doctrine of scripture doctrine of God doctrine of Christ etc at the door of an exegetical rationalism I have no idea what exegetical rationalism is what does that mean Give us an example. I mean, this guy is the one that talks about partitive exegesis all the time. So that's not exegetical rationalism? What is exegetical rationalism? And how is it um, avoided by accepting an external authority tradition that da- is not derived from that which is does? I don't know. Maybe we'll be told. The great tradition is a spirit given. Spirit given by the Spirit of God. Huh. Ministerly helpful, though not infallible. It's given by the Spirit, but it's not infallible. So is it a means of grace? A fallible means of grace? Would that be? I don't know. It's a... Spirit-given, ministerial, helpful, though not infallible, means by which we check our own individual theologizing. I thought that was the elders in the church and the ministry of the word in the church and letting all of this speak. So evidently this isn't enough. you, you got to have something else because the Spirit has given it to us. It's Spirit-given. It's ministerial helpful. Now, if all he's saying is it's helpful to be able to read people who came before us, that has nothing to do with a great tradition. So I, I love reading the institutes. I've learned so much. It's great. It's awesome. It's wonderful. And comparing the institutes with my institutes, had this this is not the full institutes. So this is the first three works, but you put, a, put the fourth one in there, and the binding will never never survive. But this is really great this one lay, lays nice and flat, and you can see a you know. so this is the one that I used for we, we did an institute study for a while, and evidently I used different color markers. <laughs> but um, I love reading this stuff. Calvin was a blessing. Got the Summa over there. Dry as the Sahara Desert. Now, other people disagree. Okay. But are these both the Great Tradition? Equally so? I thought the Great Tradition was up to the Reformation. See, we haven't been told what the Great Tradition is. We're getting this nebulous, spirit given woo woo stuff. Um, but somehow it is a means by which we check our own individual theologizing, whatever theologizing is. I I thought this was enough to do that, because if I'm going to say "Thus saith the Lord," then I need to actually have it grounded in this, right? So I thought we cannot become our own popes. That's a straw man that really needs to stop being lit up really does. I'm sick of it. It's offensive. It's absurd. Everybody who uses it is just destroying your own credibility. Every single one of you, including professors. No one is talking about becoming your own popes. Nobody. That's the straw man, solo scriptura, under the tree with the Bible garbage. I've already said, yeah, that's dumb. But that's not the same thing as going as far as what you're doing in telling us about something you refuse to define with any kind of reproducible specificity is necessary as a control upon our theologizing. We cannot become our own popes, but must appeal to our brethren past and present as we interpret our Bibles. We must appeal to our brothers, past and present, as we interpret our Bibles. So you have to appeal to Cyril of Alexandria? Read much of Cyril of Alexandria? I can assure you one thing. You will not in any way, shape, or form improve your clarity of presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ by reading a word of Cyril of Alexandria. Not a word. Did he say some true things? Probably. But do you have to have access to him? Nope. Nope. Don't actually have to have access to Calvin, but I'm often glad I do. Am I contradicting myself by reading Calvin? No, and if you think I am, you haven't been listening to the word I had to say. The charge of the great tradition has not been defined. It hasn't. It hasn't. I've given you examples. Ding, de, ding, de, ding, ding, ding. Until you guys get into the original resources, stop it. Okay? Until you get into this, stop it. Has not been defined, or the straw man that the great tradition entails a wholesale acceptance of everything that's been written in church history. How do you decide? What's The filter. What's by what standard do I read church history? (gasps) I've heard that phrase before. Or that it's a compromise of sola scriptura, of sola scripture. It's misspelled here, but it does not have to be unless you say it's spirit-given and is therefore necessary to have a true doctrine of the Trinity. Then you're violating Sola Scriptura, definitely. The definition of great tradition exegesis provided by Dr. Carter is the death knell of Sola Scriptura. There's no question about that. And I would challenge all of you Reformed Baptists, every single one of you who is in a Reformed Baptist church, you need to look at what Craig Carter says. You promote his book. You're having your students read it. You read his definition of great tradition exegesis. And if you don't stand up and say, that is not what we believe, you are not anywhere near confessional in regards to your view of scripture. Anywhere near. I went over that a month ago. I have not heard a word from anybody saying, yeah, okay, Carter's, Carter's great tradition exegesis stuff really gets out there. Haven't heard a word. Why not, guys? Why not? Okay. Are not valid charges by reason of the above? Well, the above has been um, refuted. Okay. Um, Wow. I'm sure I have missed a lot of wild and crazy stuff in social media over the past hour and a half. But I bet you there's at least one person out there that's going, oh, I have to go back to that now? Well, it was interesting thinking about other things for a while. (laughs) And maybe you're the only person we did the program for today. I don't know. Maybe you're the only person listening. Maybe only Rich needed to hear all this. I don't know. But there you go. Hopefully that is helpful to you all. Thank you for your patience. Uh, It was Monday from the last program, Um, but... um, we have to take care of things, and, 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 and we did. And uh, we appreciate uh, your patience. And Lord willing, we'll be back again next week because something tells me this is going to be a really interesting week. We'll see you then. God bless.